0: Hello there. I know that life pulls you in a million directions and you've got so much to deal with, but thank you so much for taking time out of your day to spend with us here on Price of Pain Podcast. This episode is a really special one because I think it epitomizes what my original concept for this podcast was, which is just an open conversation. We do talk a bit about science in this episode, but I think we got to something that's much more important, which is perspective we get the perspective of a brilliant researcher and follow the cycle of how our perspective shapes our interests and our interests guide our research and then what we find in our research, in turn, refines our perspective. And that cyclical nature really comes out in this talk and I think you're going to love it. I want to point out one more thing. there will invariably be topics or terms or even concepts that may be foreign to you as you listen along. So I encourage you to send those comments or questions into our email address, which is listed on the screen if you're watching along on YouTube. And if not, you can find it at priceofpainpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Send those questions in. And in a future episode, in, a, in the very near future, I'll address some of those and even give you a shout out. I love to recognize our fans and our, our audience. And so I look forward to that. But I need those questions to do it. So without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Dr. Starbucker.
1: Welcome to The Price of Pain, brought to you by the Pain Research and Intervention Center of Excellence at the University of Florida. Let's join host Dr. Joshua Crow in conversations with scientists, healthcare providers, and industry professionals as we delve into the highly subjective experience of pain in the ongoing effort to reveal its influence on our everyday lives,
0: you know, I went through and just you know, kind of read online, looking at uh, you know Grambling State, for example. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, is that HBCU mm-hmm. and, and stuff like that? You know, looking looking at that and looking at your uh, your background and and how you kind of you made a loop, right? You started at Grambling State and then up to, correct me if I'm wrong on this, up to Iowa. University of yeah. Iowa? You're wrong. Oh, I'm wrong already? Yeah. Penn State? Yes. Penn State. So, all right, so you went counterclockwise. So, so starting at Grambling State in Louisiana, then Penn State for your master's,
2: mm-hmm.
0: Iowa State for your PhD.
2: University of Iowa. You,
0: I just said Iowa State. Yeah. But, uh,. I mean, it's the same, right? Nah. Florida, Florida State, same school. Iowa, Iowa State.
3: Yeah.
0: I saw your eyes got like, oh, man!" Yeah. That old rivalry came out, <laughs> eh? Okay, I dig it. But anyway, yeah. So, just even looking at some of that when I was when I was going through, uh, you know, your profile page. Do yeah. you? Oh, that reminds me. Do you have a? Um, do you have a, a web page for your lab or anything like that? Or
2: I don't have a dedicated um, web page. I've been thinking about that though. I yeah. think it's important to showcase. The lab and the research and the collaborations too. Frankly, yeah, um, I I have a faculty page on yeah. the College of Nursing website, but I don't right. have a lab page.
0: Well There's a, I like how those are set up here at UF too, mm. because they have a lot of information mm-hmm. on there, and mm-hmm. you can access your CV and, and
4: mm-hmm. all of your publications
0: mm-hmm. and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But um, mm-hmm. the downside is it doesn't doesn't talk about your personnel that, that are helping yeah. you with current studies or anything. Like
2: yeah, that. that's true, and I think. I think if, you know, I did have a lab page that could impact recruitment and retention because I could uh, point people to that so they could see who is in my lab and what do we actually do and even put up some of the study findings, you know, so people have an idea of what we're finding. So before we go any further, Josh. Yeah. We're going to keep this professional, right? So, listen. I'm
0: excited um, now. For
2: the audience, for those of you who don't know, whenever Josh and I were on Zoom calls together or Zoom meetings. (laughs) Here we go. We're always having like these private chats or text messages about some joke or something (laughs) funny. Or we're trying to beat each other to to ask the same question.
0: Mm, That's true.
2: So we we think very much alike in a lot of ways. Um,
0: I take that that I take that as a huge compliment because you are absolutely brilliant. So thank you for that.
2: Well, thank you. Yeah. So yeah, but we're we're gonna we're gonna keep it. Well, yeah.
0: Today. I mean, it, it, it we'd have to go old school, which is I would venture to say before your time. But but you know, if if we were since there's no side chat in the Zoom call right now, I would have, actually have to pass you notes. Like, <laughs> right? <you>
5: know, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Oh,
0: yeah. since we can't really do that, we'll. Uh, We'll keep it as professional as possible. Yeah, no, we can. Yeah. This but, is fun. Yeah, I do. I do like your idea about um, the web page, and it kind of reminds me. Even remember the the meeting that we had that that was kind of the impetus for this podcast back at the beginning of 2020, before COVID really set in and you know, changed everything. But we were uh, we were talking price wide about what we can do in the coming mm-hmm. year, and and that mm-hmm. was that was my big. I don't want to say it was my contribution to the meeting, but that was a point that I wanted to make is that. You know, there's there's this wall. It seems like between mm-hmm. the the general population and uh, and academia. Yeah. You know, we're 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 pretty darn good about communicating amongst ourselves.
4: Oh, absolutely. With
0: publications and conferences mm-hmm. and this and that, but but there's uh, it's almost like the blood-brain barrier, right? It's it's like the the social version of the blood-brain barrier. There's just stuff that yeah. that doesn't make it out to yeah. the public.
2: Yeah. Um, there's definitely a translation of um research to the community yeah, yeah you know and you know the other gap is the translation to policy so we focus a lot on translating to practice but sometimes even practice doesn't make it to the community or to policy or it just takes a long time to get to policy
0: well yeah and and so i guess indirectly it mm-hmm. seems like the the community or, or the population however you want to think of it um benefits from our work mm-hmm. you know that i have that conversation all the time uh, you know my girlfriend's a physician so
4: mm-hmm.
0: when uh when we're introducing ourselves to to new people or whatnot and they ask what we do and well she's the real doctor right but there's that that perception mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but then you know we're always quick to kind of circle around it's like well without our kind of doctors, without PhDs, mm-hmm. then there's nothing to put in the textbook to teach those doctors right. how to be doctors, right? right. Yeah. But um, it, it, but even when it comes to like patients and yeah. whatnot, you know, the the fruits of our labor and our our, our benefit to society is is indirect, and maybe not even secondary, but tertiary in the respect that we as researchers
4: mm-hmm.
0: conduct our work, mm-hmm. we get our results and our findings that hopefully ends up coming somehow into practice mm-hmm. in a clinical setting through doctors and nurses and and whatnot. And then the public is the recipient of that. But, but you know, I think that's the one thing that, that COVID, um, not to bring that up twice in the same podcast, everybody's finished with it, but... Um, or wants to be anyway, (laughs) but, um, you know, that's one of the things that was really highlighted there with a lot of the misinformation going around is that people don't know how to access Mm -hmm. our work, even though it's, it's pretty readily available.
2: And you know, one thing, um, even with being a nurse scientist, so it's so funny you talk about being a real doctor versus (laughs) I guess what we do, right?
0: It's tongue in cheek, but yeah. Yeah.
2: So I was at church, um, yesterday or Sunday Mm -hmm. And um, I had on a mask and it was it's monogrammed. It says Dr. Star RN.
4: Okay.
2: And um, and so one of the greeters, she said, oh, I like your mask. I said, oh, well, thank you. And she said, Dr. Star. Oh, OK. She said, oh, RN. She said, I've never seen it. And so she said, are you a nurse practitioner? I said, no, I'm not a nurse practitioner. And because I was trying to get into church, um, I didn't (laughs) stop to explain, well, I have a Ph.D., which is why you see the doctor, and Mm -hmm. I'm a nurse scientist, and this is what I do. I do research, right, to uh, improve uh, pain outcomes in older adults. And um, I think... I think we still have a lot of education to do in terms of what we do as PhDs and how we contribute to making improvements in health. Um, but to your other point about, um, what were you saying?
0: Um, as far as the, the relationship with the community. Yeah. yeah.
2: You know, one of the things that I really try to do with my work is try to build in um points of practical application. Mm-hmm. So even in the study design, I'm always thinking about how can this impact practice or how can this change practice or, you know, what would a nurse need to do in practice in terms of how do we measure uh, movement folk pain or how do we just assess pain in older adults? So mm-hmm. I'm always thinking about the clinical application piece to my research because I want my research to be um, easy, easily translated into practice. Yeah. So, you know, even, for example... Um, the pain scales that we use, right? So I use, I don't know if I can say this. I don't think it's copyrighted. Um, <laughs> but I use the Defense and Veterans Pain Rating Scale, which is typically used in the VA system.
0: Can you describe that a little bit?
2: Um, so the scale, I would call it kind of a, it's a multi-graphic, numeric, descriptive scale. So um, there, it combines a lot of different ways that people may think about their pain. So maybe they think about their pain in terms of um, how it limits their activities, or they may think of it on the zero to 10, the traditional numeric rating scale, mm-hmm. or they may think of it in terms of um, maybe they're more visual. So it includes faces and um, the faces change as your pain increases. So there it, it includes a lot of different ways that people can conceptualize their pain. And mm-hmm. I really like that scale because it gives older adults options to be able to conceptualize in their mind what their pain is and they communicate it with me.
0: Well, yeah, and I like that. I've seen that in with the the, uh, and I don't know if, if that particular scale uses illustrations mm-hmm. for the faces or mm-hmm. if it's actual images, but um,
2: it's illustrations. Yeah, but you yeah. know, like the
0: squinty eyes, right. like oh, yeah. you know, I'm in pain mm-hmm. or oh, I'm sad from you know. Yeah, uh, I do like that, particularly with older adults. Now, in in previous episodes, we've talked about how pain is so subjective and everybody experiences it differently. Mm-hmm. But with older adults or, or, you know, chronic pain in general, I, I, maybe I shouldn't even limit it to that population. You get so accustomed to the pain that you feel, not that it necessarily goes away, but, mm-hmm. you know, you, 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 you adapt and right. you modify your mm-hmm. behavior and mm-hmm. all that. And so, yeah, I, I think that's a, a really important point because how the pain affects you may go beyond mm-hmm. how it hurts mm-hmm. into more well, it doesn't allow me to do this, right. or it's a you know it's a burden. It's just a weight on yeah. me all the time.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I like that. It really it's it, it helps to 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 kind of shine a light on all the facets of the Right, pain absolutely, yeah. yeah. And I,
2: it's just easier for um, people to look at a scale um, that they have options, right? You know, most people are accustomed to the zero to ten numeric rating scale, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but some people still find it difficult to identify the exact pain rating. You know, they'll say, oh, it's between, you know, a 6 and a 7. But maybe if they have some kind of description for what a 6 may look like, because, again, it's subjective, right, mm-hmm. um, then it just kind of helps them be able to say, oh, yeah, this is my pain is a 6 because it X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And so that's kind of one way that I try to incorporate kind of like um, clinical application into my research so that when I write about it, that it can be, uh, used by nurses or physicians or even you know physical therapists. Um, because I want my work to be able to impact not just nursing, but I want it to be able to impact you know every facet of healthcare or at least health professionals who would be assessing and managing pain. Um, and so you know in some research, you use the zero to one hundred skill.
0: Mm-hmm. Zero being no pain at all, mm-hmm. one hundred being the worst pain imaginable. Right. That leaves a lot of room in yeah, between. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: So I, I try to bring it back down to the patient's level, okay? So typically in practice, we don't use zero to 100. We use zero
0: to 10. See, that's good to know for researchers because now I don't have a clinical degree. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm not a nurse like you are. Um, I'm not a clinical psychologist. So the application of this, that's, I think that's hugely important and why people like you that, that kind of straddle that, mm-hmm. that boundary between research and, and, and clinical practice are so important. Because there are some things that we may use because it's, it's easy to analyze statistically or something like that, right? But um, clinically, it's not used, so it does it's not practical. Right. And I feel like that is is a key component to good translational research. Translational mm-hmm. research is mm-hmm. is obviously a tier of research that that tries to combine some of these things and make it within a couple steps, if not directly, mm-hmm. applicable right. in clinical practice, right? Yeah, yeah.
2: Yes. I think the other benefit, too, is on your research teams is including a clinical person. Mm. So whether it's a nurse or PT or someone who has um, experience in direct patient care. Right, right. So that they bring that clinical the practical piece to your research, which will help with um, the translation piece. And, you know, the other thing that I do, um, typically if I write a research-related article based on my study or someone else's data,
5: mm-hmm.
2: I try to find a way to also write a clinical-based article. I like that. So how can we help people translate our research um, into practice so that they don't have to figure it out themselves. Mm-hmm. so we say, okay, based on this research that we've done, this is how it looks in practice or this is how it could look in practice right. so i I try to as I am growing mm-hmm. as a faculty member right as a um, as a scientist, as a mentor, um, one of the things that I try to encourage students and other mentees is think about your research in three different realms, right? You have research, practice, Mm -hmm. maybe policy or public health or something like that. Mm
4: -hmm.
2: And when you can, and when you design your research study, try to think of how my findings can be put into a publication for research, a database paper, Mm How can my findings be translated into a practice or a clinical paper, and then how can my paper be translated, or how can I develop a policy-based paper?
0: What are some examples of policy-based? Like, what? How? Can you give? Can you give an example, either that you have done recently, or, or or fabricate something that, that makes a good example. But so how would you take some, some of your work yeah. a, a particular study yeah. and do that and make it so it applies to those three realms? Cause I, I feel like people understand, you know, that when we talk about clinical,
4: mm-hmm.
0: it's that gap of, well, okay, research has found this, but
4: mm-hmm.
0: what does that mean for us? How do we use it? Right. Right? And in pain research, that's huge. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, research is is pretty fine because
4: mm-hmm.
0: I I would like to think our audience has an idea of that, that when we, when we publish a paper, mm-hmm. the goal of that is, is of course, to communicate our findings and allow people to integrate that into other studies to take it a step uh, beyond what we did
3: mm-hmm.
0: uh, or even maybe just to try to replicate it. If it's right. something relatively new, mm-hmm. I was just having this conversation with my mother yesterday. There's a relatively new finding. Mm-hmm. That's all fine and dandy, but it doesn't mean as much until mm-hmm. somebody else comes along mm-hmm. and replicates it and finds the same thing, right? Yeah. But policy… Mm-hmm. I would venture to say that that outside of our peers that are listening to this, mm-hmm. people don't know what you mean by policy paper. So if you could break it down just in and give an example. If if you can. And right. if not, you yeah. know, I don't put you on the spot. But Oh
2: know. no, it's fine. I'll I'll share what I know and what I do.
0: Okay. That's perfect. That's why you're here. <laughs> <That's>
2: <laughs> so um, you know, one of the issues though is that we aren't trained in policy. We, you know, even in our doctoral studies, at least for my doctoral studies, we really don't have a lot of training in in policy. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that makes it difficult for uh, hardcore researchers to um, really kind of envision what that policy piece would look like. But I'll give an example of of a paper that I recently wrote based on my doctoral findings. And so um, uh, can we put up the first slide? So um, if you look at that slide there, um, I've included the top five pain self-management strategies that older African-Americans uh, use to try to manage osteoarthritis pain. Okay. Um, these are just the top five. Um, I have a top ten. but So this top five um, basically says that they use topicals or creams like ointments, rubs, mm-hmm. um, liniments, salves, things like that. hmm Um, They use a lot of thermal modalities, heat, mainly like hot showers or warm compress. Okay. Um, They also use exercise, land-based, so walking, maybe a little bit of some, you know, light aerobics or something like that. Um, Over-the-counter medications, typically like Tylenol or ibuprofen, Aleve, something like that. And then they also use prayer.
0: Okay. And also just, I want to point this out um, because you did bring some slides. We do have some people in the audience that listen to the audio only. So this is a a good reminder for those of you that that do listen to audio only. If you want to switch over to our YouTube channel, you can actually see these images, but I if if I interject here, mm-hmm. and there, like for example, on the slide that we're looking at now, you've just given us these top five mm-hmm. self management strategies mm-hmm. uh, amongst African Americans with osteoarthritis, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But one important thing, and this is even for the people watching along on YouTube as well, this n equals one hundred and ten, right? Means that you had a study that included one hundred and ten right. individuals, right? Absolutely, okay. okay. Yeah.
2: So, um, so the the other thing that I asked older adults about was. Um, other types of tre- treatments that they would be interested in right mm-hmm. um, whether it's acupuncture yoga um, whatever it is and
0: this is beyond so when when you presented this so so we came out with topicals thermal exercise mm-hmm. over-the-counter meds prayer when you presented this
3: mm-hmm.
0: you is I would assume there was a list of a number of things and these are the ones that came out on top. Mm-hmm. And so when you asked about other types, did they have the opportunity to fill in um, what they do? It was open-ended. Okay, yeah. Yeah,
2: so I asked about, you know, what other treatments they would be interested in trying, things that they've heard that they have not tried for whatever reason. Okay. Um, And so, and I did qualitative interviews with 18 of the 110 participants. Mm -hmm. So I did more of an in-depth interview, had a conversation with them, to really understand the experience of living with pain and managing pain on a day-to-day basis. And so I used the quantitative data and the qualitative data to develop a policy-based paper. So I looked at healthcare policies or social policies that either, A, limited their ability to manage pain or mm-hmm. uh, enhanced their ability to manage pain. And so I really looked a lot at the qualitative data. So they talked about things...
0: I'm going to interject just really quick and just due diligence is is my role as host, Mm -hmm. qualitative versus quantitative. Yes. Because I'm sure there are some people that it sounds really cool, it sounds professional, and that you really know what you're talking about because you do. But I don't want them to, Mm -hmm. to, you know, if if we can teach them what that means also. So just the big difference between qualitative and quantitative.
2: Uh, In the most simple terms, quantitative data deals with numbers.
0: Quantities.
2: Yes. Makes sense. Amounts, frequencies, proportions, percentages. Okay. Okay. Qualitative deals with words. Um, It could be the spoken words of people, the written words of people. Uh, It could also include behavioral observations, right? I deal mostly with the verbal um, words of people, so the things that they tell me in their interviews. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's kind of really simply. Simple uh, quantitative versus qualitative data,
0: which is makes sense to me because I'm thinking of this on on the other end as well, where you or your staff or somebody, after you conduct this survey, mm-hmm. now if we're starting with 110 participants to begin with, and you said you narrowed it down to 15 for the qualitative,
2: 18, yeah, 18, 18, mm-hmm.
0: okay for the qualitative. So if if you uh, if you asked 110, you could legitimately have sentences or a paragraph. For 110 participants, and they could all be different, mm-hmm. right? Theor- theoretically, so mm-hmm. that could, for, from a from a managing the data and, and producing something meaningful, that could, yeah. that could be chaotic. And
2: right? we did ask uh, several open ended questions to all 110, in okay. addition to the in depth interviews with the 18 participants.
0: That sounds really comprehensive.
2: Yeah, I, I try to
0: really. be. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big part of what you do, right? Yeah, right. Um,
2: because I I think we don't understand the full experience. Of pain that we we miss things. And Mm -hmm. then that really limits our ability to work with people in practice, right? If we don't have the full knowledge or at least as much knowledge as we can have, then we're going to miss something in practice, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes it will probably be the most important thing that you miss in practice if you don't talk to people Mm -hmm. and understand what their life is like with pain. So, so, so yeah,
0: yeah. I, I sidetracked you oh, a little no, bit there, fine. but you were talking about the, the qualitative and quantitative aspects of this particular study.
2: Right. So um, in the qualitative interviews, you know, people talked about how insurance limited their ability, their access to certain uh, treatments. And I'm just going to throw this out here. Um, for example, maybe someone wanted to try acupuncture, but maybe the type of insurance that they had doesn't cover it. Mm-hmm. Um, or they talk about co-pays. Right. Or they talk about uh, discrimination in terms of insurance, and perhaps seeing people with a with better insurance, right, right. first before they would see them, mm-hmm. even though they're in excruciating pain. So I crafted a policy based paper based on their qualitative interviews, and I essentially—I um, wish I would have brought the paper. Um, <laughs> But essentially, I have three different policy exemplars. So, for example, um, one exemplar is uh, talking about covering alternative and integrative therapies. So I include the narratives from my participants if they talked about some type of alternative therapy that they would be interested in, Mm -hmm. um, but maybe their insurance doesn't cover it, right? So um, some people talked about fish oil. Okay. Um, and talked about Omega Excel, but f- for people who are, um, on a lower income, sometimes that can even things like that yeah. is very costly. Yeah. Um, but if their insurance would cover that, they
0: then, would try it. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Okay. And whether or not it works, it works or maybe it doesn't, but they at least want the opportunity mm-hmm. to try it. So, um, and so I also looked at um, changes in. I guess, Louisiana law in terms of Medicare and Medicaid. Okay. Because at the time of this study, um, this was right around the time the ACA was really uh, going into full effect across the U.S. and states were having to make decisions about whether or not they would expand Medicare and Medicaid. Mm -hmm. Um, And Louisiana chose to expand. And so a lot of my participants were talking about how important that would be in helping them be able to have greater access to a lot of treatments because now they have this expanded coverage, right? Mm. So they even talked about that. And so that's all policy, you know? Um, And so I essentially crafted a qualitative paper from their narratives where they talked about anything related to policy, insurance, um, laws, et cetera.
0: That's brilliant. And so that's something that that, you know, in a in a roundabout way, could maybe help clinicians if they knew. Well, uh-huh. hey, look, these people would try this. But at the end of the day, it's really the people that are advocating for changes in in public policy that would benefit from that paper that aren't really interested so much in how do you measure pain uh-huh. in. An African American older adult with the answer mm-hmm, this, mm-hmm. they don't care about that. Right. They want they want something that they can take to their their state legislature right. or even you know a national commission or board right. to say, hey, look, we need more of Absolutely. this. Absolutely, if people want this, that's okay. I see what you're saying. And
2: and kind of on their point, when you talk about what providers should know, uh, one of the things that also came out of my qualitative data was this kind of shared decision making model that I developed. And one of the things that they talked about was the importance of providers understanding the type of insurance that their patients have Mm -hmm. and making treatment recommendations based on what's available to them. Um, And so, you know, older African Americans are coming to providers for their professional expertise, right? Mm -hmm. And they are looking to work collaboratively with providers to make a treatment plan. Um, The decision is not solely up to the provider to say, hey, this is what we're going to do rather not Rather, uh, old African-Americans want to make that decision with a provider to find out what's the best treatment. Mm-hmm. But they want providers to understand, don't make a recommendation for something that I, my insurance won't pay for. Right, right. Um, so let's be real here. And um, I think sometimes providers uh, don't always keep that frame of, oh, okay, you have a patient, you know, has this particular insurance, I know they're not going to cover this, Mm -hmm. you know, so Mm -hmm. we won't even try to go down that that route. Um, And so I think it's really, really important that we really merge all of these things together in practice. We have to bring in the policy and the advocacy piece in research. Mm -hmm. We should at least kind of have that lens, whether or not that's our ultimate goal or our purpose. We should kind of be thinking long term, like how will my work impact, practice, policy, people.
0: I see, I think that's a huge benefit of you also being a nurse mm-hmm. is, is you look from that perspective because that's something that that it seems, and, and I would venture to say that the greatest ideas often do come across as like, well, that's simple, why didn't I think of that, right? Mm-hmm. But that, that I really think that that's one of them. Just, and, and there are ramifications. So obviously just for the benefit of the patient that's dealing with chronic pain to not have a clinician that suggests, well, this is, this is how we're going to do this for you and leave them with that and no other options, not even knowing whether the insurance will cover it or not. But I think there's another level in my relatively minimal psychology background. And that's that looking at the efficacy of treatment, Mm. particularly with pain. Mm -hmm. Now we did some work, um, back during my doctoral studies on placebo effect. And you know, I, I, I would venture to say that the outcomes for treatment for patients that have a role in selecting the treatment, if they're informed and they get a choice for that, they obviously you going you're not going to select something as, okay, this is how I want to deal with my pain if you don't think that it might work, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so just doing that, just that, that, that belief that this may work, this may be the thing that reduces or eliminates my pain, increases the likelihood that it will have an effect. It, it, it you know, it, it augments mm-hmm. whatever the clinical effect of the treatment is mm-hmm. um, through placebo effect. Because we have, often talk about placebo, like, well, it's a, a sugar pill or, you know, something fake, but really it's, it's the effect that, that the, you know, the people can somewhat manifest in their own mind, Mm -hmm. as far as, you know, well, do I, does this really make me feel better in, in a very simplistic term, mind over matter. And Mm -hmm. I feel like what you're talking about empowers them to choose something that, that may work. Mm -hmm. Um, and so if it has clinical value, that's great. But if they believe in it, then it's the likelihood that it's going to work even more and be even more effective for them Mm -hmm. is greater. And the gateway to that is, having clinicians that present them with opportunities first of all giving them a choice mm-hmm. but then a choice that they can actually partake in right. is, you know
2: you know i don't want to speak for the whole of providers but i don't think we do a very good job of actually talking to patients about efficacy of treatments mm-hmm. um we'll say you know hey we'll prescribe you this drug Right. You know, or we, you know, we may say, you know, we've seen success in, in other patients, but we don't really talk about the efficacy, you know, of the drug and and how it could um, or how it may work in this particular patient. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing um, that came out in my research is that for old African-Americans, not only do they want something that's going to be effective, but they also want something that's not going to cause additional side effects. Right. Um, you know, that I had one participant who uh, had really severe OA, osteoarthritis, Mm -hmm. and um, she's been on a lot of different medications throughout the years, and, you know, opioids, of course, was one of the uh, offered treatments, right, Mm -hmm. Um, but she decided she was not going to take opioids because she didn't want it. She didn't want the side effects. She didn't want the side effects that it could cause on uh, kidneys, heart, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so she just chose not to take opioids. And... Um, you know, her physician was really kind of impressed that she had made that informed decision mm-hmm. uh, to not take a particular drug based now, on how it would affect her.
0: Now, did her physician inform her of those side effects or did she educate herself on those?
2: I believe she educated herself.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and I don't know how long ago this was, but I, I know somebody that, um, that was in a pretty bad motorcycle accident, mm-hmm. for example, shattered his ankle. Um And through the reconstructive process and all that, I mean, it it changed everything, Mm -hmm. at least in the short term, uh, about his life. You know, he wasn't able to work and whatnot, and he was in a great deal of pain, and and he's an active guy, so, you know, like working out in the shop and doing the things he liked to do. He wasn't able to do those things. Now, that's normal for an injury, but then you get this chronic pain condition, right?
3: Mm -hmm.
0: And so looking at, you know, years after this accident there is a role that that the treatment that was prescribed to him and, and there are multiple kinds of treatments that were that were attempted, but those had an effect. So think I mean, even you, you talk about um, you know, some of the physical effects of, mm-hmm. of opioid, you know, long term opioid mm-hmm. use. And that's the other thing, you know, at one point we didn't realize how easily it was to lapse into long term opioid use mm-hmm. or addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one thing, I guess it's a benefit now that, that people are more aware of that, but, mm-hmm. but even just that, so let's say, for example, I, you know, one of the things that I like to do to alleviate stress or, if, or, or if, if I'm in pain to get my mind off it is go for a drive,
3: mm-hmm.
4: go,
0: go for a drive through the countryside, ride my bike or something like that. If it's something I could do, obviously, if you have a shattered ankle, that's not your thing, but mm-hmm. you know, fill in the blank, whatever it mm-hmm. is. Well, how much of what you're allowed to do or able to do either physically or legally, is hindered by your treatment. Mm-hmm. If you're on opioids, I mean, you know, we not not that it's a joke, but you can't operate heavy right. equipment, right, including mm-hmm. a car. Yeah. But there's plenty that you can't do. You know, it's some of the the brain fog that, that's involved. Yeah. It just it the treatment itself, like you said, has it may even have a larger impact on your life mm-hmm. than the actual pain itself.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of people think of the major impact of opioids is addiction, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's another reason why a lot of older adults opt out of using opioids is because they are worried about dependence and addiction. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think that, I think that's why older African Americans really want to work within this shared decision-making model Mm -hmm. because they don't want to be prescribed something that's going to cause dependence and addiction on medications. You know, medications, they have their place, right? You know, they do help. Mm -hmm. um, but if there are other options, you know, besides certain medications, then that's what people would probably rather or would prefer.
0: Well, and that makes it rough with, with pain also, right? It's, it's not like you've got a, a, a bacteria that we know when we talk about efficacy, mm-hmm. right? You've got a bacteria, yeah. you, you know, you take this antibiotic. And, yeah, maybe the side effect is that you need to eat more yogurt or something to keep your gut biome safe. But we know that this antibiotic kills this bacteria, and if you take it for 10 days, you know, you're good. Mm-hmm. Um, pain doesn't work that way. There's not a, a, a magic target that you can that you can approach, even with opioids, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. it, the efficacy of opioids declines over time, even if you take more of them. Yeah. So it's there's it's not like the, the drug goes in there and, and pushes this magic button that all of a sudden makes the pain go away. Yeah. It might cover your perception of the pain for mm-hmm. a time, right? Mm-hmm.
3: But, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it, yeah, it gets really complex really quickly. So having those options and, and, mm-hmm. and putting that... I, like I said, I feel like it's kind of enabling the the patient to have a role in their own, mm-hmm. you know, their own treatment. I think that's huge.
2: Uh, yeah, I would agree with it. So this is kind of a funny joke that uh, one of my – it's really not a you joke. Can't,
0: you can't say that the joke's funny before you say it. Well, what if, I mean, okay. what if the crowd doesn't laugh?
2: You're right. Okay, right. so here's something that a participant shared with me that I actually found funny.
0: Okay, okay. there we go. All right. <laughs> All right.
4: Um,
2: so, you know, when you talked about, you know, medications, I guess, finding that magic target, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually had a couple of participants, and both were men, that talked about...
0: I'm already triggered, but <laughs> go ahead.
2: That talked about taking, uh, let's just say Tylenol. And, you know, maybe you take the Tylenol for a headache, right? Mm-hmm. They found it funny that the Tylenol would help the headache, but it wouldn't help the osteoarthritis. And so, I, I don't want to say what this one particular person said but basically they said it's a darn shame mm-hmm. that medication knows where to go
5: <laughs> Right. and I
2: thought well yeah it does because depending on the type of pain where the pain is emanating from mm-hmm. um, how the medication the mechanism of action for the medication it, it may help your headache but it may not help right. your osteoarthritis pain Um, And so, you know, I think that's the other thing, too, with um, advocating for yourself is really understanding how the medications work. And as providers, we have have to do our due diligence in teaching patients. This medication may help with this type of pain, but it may not help with this. Mm -hmm. So when you have this pain, take this. When you have this, take this. And then include other like i showed other self-management strategies that mm-hmm. will help kind of complement so, yeah right or something absolutely like, yeah. yeah um because it all helps with coping right it all helps with dealing with pain mm-hmm. and so i'll just quickly share my personal story related to um to chronic pain and opioids and so in 2015 um i was going to the library mm-hmm. in iowa okay um and I wanted to just run in and run out, so I decided to, to park at the metered parking.
0: Okay.
2: And right in front of the metered parking, I needed to kind of just step up, like one step up, literally one step up, one step down, and I'm finished. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was like a layer of ice, and I thought, eh, it's okay, I can one step up, one step down.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: I stepped up fine, right? Put, put my money in uh, the meter. And for some reason I decided to turn my body to step down. Instead of just stepping down, right? Mm-hmm. And when I turned, bam, fell flat on my bottom. Oh no. And I so break I, your I,
0: tailbone? Ooh, that's the—that's a very unique. I, kind but I—I I
2: didn't know at the time that that's what happened. Mm-hmm. I knew I had fallen very, very hard, and I remember I was sitting there maybe for like five seconds, thinking, "I hope no one saw me."
0: <laughs> right? Yeah, but once that wears off, <laughs> right? And then it's like,
2: "Oh shoot!" The first thought that came to my mind after that was, "Oh shoot!" And I'm country,
0: so mm-hmm. I said, "I had noticed."
2: I said, "Oh shoot!" I just bust my butt.
0: <laughs> right.
2: And I thought, okay, well, I have to get up. I need to go into the library to do this. And then I had a meeting right after that I was trying to get to. And um, I didn't even go in the library because immediately that the pain just was there. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, my gosh, this is pretty intense. But I th- thought I have to go meet with a statistician for my dissertation. So I was like, I'm not canceling my meeting. Love that
0: drive. Oh, yeah. Okay. I was trying to
2: get out. Um, okay. And so I went to the meeting and... The pain was just so intense that even five, well, probably 15 minutes later, the pain was so intense that I couldn't sit down, right? Mm. So when I got in my car to drive to the parking garage, I sat kind of like <laughs> right,
0: on, my, on, my one, side, on one side, yeah. You know,
2: which is very uncomfortable. I've been there, yeah. Um, and long story short, you know, I had my PhD uh, proposal meeting coming up. And um, I knew I'd I'd have to write, which Mm -hmm. meant sitting down a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, But after I fell, I waited a few days, even before I went to the emergency department. And and that was only at the encouragement of my doctoral mentors. They said, I think you should go have that checked out. And in my mind, even though I'm a pain researcher... I'm telling myself, oh, this is going to get better. It's just, you know, the first few days of the inflammation process. You know, mm-hmm. it's going to get better. The pain's going to get better, you know, by the weekend. You know, I should be feeling some better, right?
0: hmm No, yeah. no. <laughs> so, yeah. I shouldn't laugh. I, I know that's horrible. Oh, I've, no. I've broken my tailbone before also. And it's oh,
2: just not. So you know that. I
0: know this pain.
2: Yeah, it's it's yeah. not fun at all. Um, You know, and I was joking with my sister. I was like, I've never had a baby I said, but this is what I would imagine the pressure mm-hmm. of having to push a baby out mm-hmm. feels like, except breath the other end, right? Right, right. Um, so anyway, so. Well,
0: I've never had a baby either, so I can't comment on that. <laughs> but, um, you know, the the thing about this, and I guess everybody can guess, is, that, you know, when you fracture your tailbone, mm-hmm. it's not like they can cast it and right. immobilize yeah. it. And, you yeah. know, there's just, there. you mm-hmm. can sit on a donut. Right. That doesn't really help no. a whole lot. There's no, just not much you can do.
2: Yeah, Yeah, so eventually, so finally I decided to go to the emergency department. I was really putting it off. I just, I didn't want to go to the emergency department. Um, But a few things happened. So when I went to the emergency department, I decided I would go in as a regular patient. Mm -hmm. No, I didn't tell anyone that I was a nurse. I didn't tell anyone that I was a student uh, in the Ph.D. program in nursing
0: so little N of one study on your own Oh, there. yeah. Okay. I do that all the time. Yes, yeah, so do I. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, so I went in because I, I wanted to see um, not only how I would be treated, you know, as a patient, but I wanted to see how they would approach my pain and how would they approach assessing my pain and even managing my pain. Mm-hmm. Um, so, of course, you know, through triage they ask, you know, what, what are you, were you here for? I tell them, you know, I fell, uh, blah, blah, blah. I'm having a lot of pain. Et cetera, et cetera. Triage nurse doesn't even ask me to rate my pain. Really? And I think, okay, well, all right. Well, maybe this is just part of their process. You know, I've never been to the emergency department as a patient, so I don't know.
4: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, So, yeah, you know, does her usual things. um, And then, you know, I go back out into the emergency waiting room and wait for them to Take me back to an observation room so they can get x-rays and things like that. Um, So once I get back to the observation room, um, of course, they come in and say, you know, um, this is the payment that's required. (laughs) And I think, are you serious? Payment?
0: (laughs) All right. They just jump right to it.
2: Right to it. Just right to it. And uh, I, you know, of course, I'm already annoyed because I'm in the emergency department, and I'm thinking you're concerned about a payment. And, you know, I don't know if I should be saying this. Well,
0: <laughs> well, I tell you what, we can always cut it out. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm kidding.
2: Um. And so they're like, you know, how are you going to pay? And I'm like, well, I don't know. Just here's my debit card. You know, leave me alone. I'm I'm in severe pain, literally. Treat my
0: treat me treat right. my pain. Right. Yeah.
2: Um. So. Um. I have the pleasure of working with a nurse practitioner, and, you know, she's she's very friendly and nice. She comes in, and um, I think she asks a few questions, but no one ever asks me about my pain.
0: Still? No. So you've been triaged. Uh-huh. Now you're actually seeing the nurse practitioner that's uh-huh. going to prescribe treatment to you, and right. still no one's asked about your pain.
2: mm I didn't rate my pain at one time.
0: Now, I assume you... you Imaging and all that stuff. You got x-rays or something. So,
2: yeah. yeah, So finally they did take me back uh, to have x-rays. But for the x-rays, you have to lay flat on your back. Well, I told them. I said, I can't do that right now. Mm -hmm. Um, So did
0: they, I'm sorry to interrupt, but did they at least ask where it hurt?
2: Well, yeah. They knew that during triage because I mentioned, you know, that I had fallen.
0: But just not how, they didn't ask how much it hurts. Mm -hmm. Which I think is, you know, this is another interesting thing. I don't want to, just a brief, you know sidestep here, is we keep seeing all of these data that come out now about, and I'm not saying that these these clinicians did this to you, mm-hmm. but all of this information is coming out when we look at even when, when pain rating is asked mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. or when a patient says, I'm in pain, that that's perceived very differently based on the color of their skin. Now, I know that there's a lot right now and and people are inundated with all of these kinds of racial disparities. But there's a really robust finding that Mm -hmm. that if you say that, you know, let's say this at some point they actually did ask for your pain on a zero to 10 scale. You say, oh, man, like this is
2: 10.
0: Don't right? Okay, (laughs) Worst pain imaginable. Right. And and, uh, not even how has it impacted you? What can't you do? Just how much does it hurt? Yeah. You say 10 and I say 10.
4: They're more likely to take me seriously that
0: it's a 10 and -hmm. and not so much you, Mm -hmm. without even realizing it. It's not like they're
2: thinking, but
0: they just, for some reason, on the average. Well,
2: that's implicit bias. And quite frankly, we probably all have a little bit of that. Because, you know, sometimes, even with me, I'll say, you know, could you rate your pain zero to 10? They'll say, oh, yeah, it's an eight. And
0: you, is it really though? Right. Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah and and I have to you know continue to tell myself hey this is what they're saying so this is their truth mm-hmm. right I have to accept it
0: well and, and it, it is based on worst pain imaginable maybe they've lived a life where that is right. one of the worst that pain that they've mm-hmm. they've mm-hmm. ever felt yeah I mean if you were to talk to a, a, a burn patient
3: mm-hmm.
0: and they had broken their tailbone maybe they would you right. know, now yeah. that changes their scale right, right? but yeah but that's not you. Right. So anyway, yeah. so you. All right. So you'd gone in.
2: Yeah, you, we we get X rays. You know, I didn't lay completely flat. I found a way to kind of raise up just a little bit so that I'm not. You know, I'm thinking, mm-hmm. yeah, no. If you're not gonna <laughs> give me any medication, I'm not laying completely flat. Right. Uh, so anyway, so they get the images that they need, and uh, we wait for the radiologist to come in and read those, and. Um, then the nurse practitioner comes in, gives me the results, and says, you know, it looks like you have a fracture between S4 and S5.
0: Okay.
2: And then she says, but it looks like you may have a um, compression fracture S3, I think.
0: So you you did more than a broken tailbone. You fractured your sacrum. Yes. Which is yes. For, for those of yeah. you that are not Sorry. up on your anatomy. It's, no, it's that's, that's that's yeah. that's more intense. Yeah. Like tailbone is, is vestigial. It doesn't really do anything for us. Your sacrum, for just to catch everybody up, is the bone that holds basically the two large bones of your pelvis together. It, and it connects that to your spine. So it's kind of a big mm. deal. It's a load-bearing structure. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so so you had multiple oh. fractures.
2: Josh, I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, it's a big deal.
2: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, and so they couldn't tell if the compression fracture was an older fracture or mm-hmm. not or if it was uh, a new fracture with the fall or not. Um, but anyway, so still, no one has offered me even a Tylenol at this
0: point. <laughs> For crying out loud.
2: You know? Literally. And I'm, I've am i been here probably almost three hours in the emergency department. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: Well, because I was going to say, I wonder, and, and this goes all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, so much of what we, or I say we, mm-hmm. so much of what clinicians do that's different than what we do in research is that. You're on a time schedule, yeah. right? If you yeah. can get somebody in and out and see the next patient that really needs some attention, mm-hmm. then that benefits everybody. Um, you know, the the facility can make more money, but more patients can be seen and treated mm-hmm. also. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I'm thinking is like, maybe these are just necessary corners to cut to get the, you treated and get you the help you need so they can get the next person in. But three hours? Oh,
2: mm-hmm. yeah. Easily. Mm. Yeah, three hours. Um, and so, when she came in with the results, she explained, um, you know, what it was. was okay, yeah, I probably figured that. Um, and then she said, you know, this is what I'm going to prescribe. And she prescribed, um, hydrocodone. I
0: think. Just went right to it, okay.
2: Yeah, she prescribed hydrocodone. Um, and of course... <laughs> Being a nurse and having knowledge of pain mm-hmm. medications, I said, "Well, what about a muscle relaxer? <laughs> and uh, because I knew it was more right. than just right and I, I knew that there were other structures mm-hmm. that were going to be affected, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so she said, "Oh, yeah, sure, I can do that." And I was thinking, if I didn't have this knowledge, you would just send me home with an opioid medication, this donut, mm-hmm. and that's it <laughs> right that's it. Yeah, but Hmm. because I had knowledge I said okay I have hydrocodone in between my doses I'm going to take Tylenol Mm -hmm. and I'm going to take a muscle relax I'm going to alternate right so Mm -hmm. I had this whole system going um, at home and um, of course I was also using things like ice you know to try to help with the inflammation so doing different things that I knew would help but you know if I again if I didn't know what I knew then Mm -hmm. or what I knew then my pain would potentially be not well controlled. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the trap that a lot of patients fall in, is not having the knowledge. Um, and then sometimes providers not taking the time to really provide the education and advocate for, for patients. So, yeah, so I left the emergency department fractured in many ways.
0: <laughs> but you got an inflatable donor.
2: I, yeah, I did. And, and some
0: motivation to fix the system.
2: Yes, Um, absolutely. Because, you know, even in the, in the observation room that I was in, you know, there was not even a pain scale on the wall. You know, some hospitals you go to in patient rooms, they may have a pain scale zero to 10, or they may have the Mm -hmm. faces scale up. There was not even that there. And, um, you know, I just, I found it really interesting and I don't know. I, I look at that experience and I say it's really due to, um, the lack of knowledge that providers have about how to manage pain. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to chalk it up to my race. I didn't want to chalk it up to my gender. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to chalk it up to my youthfulness, Mm -hmm. Um, because sometimes people look at me and say, oh, she looks young, so she probably doesn't know.
0: Well, you still are young.
2: Well, I am young, but, you know, people look at me and they may say, oh, she's probably like, you know, 19 or
0: 20. Right, right. You know,
2: she doesn't know anything. And I'm like, oh, yeah, Yeah. I
0: don't know. But guess what? Even when I was 19 or 20, I knew something. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah. Right. Well, no, I I I think that's a really good point. And, and you know, the what got us down this track um, was talking about that disconnect between the public Mm -hmm. and academia and what Mm -hmm. we do in research. But it sounds like that disconnect is by way of a pretty big disconnect between the research and clinical practice mm-hmm. as well. I mean, I that's one of the things that, that frustrates me is that people don't even realize. And I didn't. I've said this on the podcast before. I didn't realize the extent to which we could study pain. Mm. Um, you know, we work in a lot of soreness and, and injury recovery and whatnot throughout mm-hmm. my doctoral studies. Um, and we asked to rate pain. Mm-hmm. But there, I mean, there are, and, and we'll have uh, on future episodes, we'll, we'll talk about some of the, the actual assessments that we mm-hmm. use to induce and rate, you know, and ask to rate pain. But, um, but yeah, I didn't know about any of that, but, but the, the difference in how people perceive pain, that's not really any, you know, we have, say for example, for, if, if we were running a study that mm-hmm. had 18 to 35 year olds, younger, mm-hmm. younger people and we're talking about acute pain, mm-hmm. but this applies to acute pain also that. Everybody doesn't experience it the same way. Right. A a a broken sacrum is not the same for everyone.
4: Yeah.
0: Um. And so, you know, there's that. That's what that what I wanted to do with Mm -hmm. this podcast. And I think you've done a phenomenal job. We actually we never even really got a chance to get to talking about your your at least current interest partially in movement to vote paint. So what that means is that you have to come back on because we've got a lot of work about to talk about in in your work.
2: All right. Well, can can I share one? one more image please okay please so uh let's put up.
0: but while while you're thinking of that i just i do want to point out and thank you for for shedding a light on some things that that i would venture to say that many of the people Mm -hmm. listening Mm -hmm. will instantly identify with in their own experience with pain Mm
4: -hmm.
0: without a doubt and those that haven't really been in a situation and those, those blessed few that haven't had to deal with, mm-hmm. whether it be an injury or dealing with chronic pain, mm-hmm. um, I think hearing after hearing what you've said, they'll go, oh, wow, that really is something that when and if I'm ever in that situation, I don't want to yeah. deal with or I want to be enabled to help right. you know make a decision on my treatment. That's, right. that's something and that And hopefully so the many system
2: people. will be better, too. Right, you right,
0: know, right. You know,
2: that's one of my goals as a nurse scientist is to enhance and improve you know the knowledge of nurses,
5: mm-hmm.
2: and being able to you know really accurately assess pain, and then you know finding multiple ways to help patients manage pain. Yeah. So, uh, can you okay, put so a yeah, slide sorry. four? Okay, Josh, we're going to play a quick game.
0: Oh, okay. I'm excited. So So should I describe what we're looking at really quick for those that are just listening before we play the game? Or do you want to play the game first and then describe it?
2: uh, I'll describe it really quickly. Okay. So uh, what you see here are um, pain intensity ratings for African-Americans with osteoarthritis pain and white Americans with osteoarthritis pain. Um, And this was during um, a chair rise activity. Okay. So they had to stand from a high chair um and sit to um a low chair. Okay. Um and they had to do that unassisted. So they couldn't use their arms or anything to help push up.
0: So they got up from a high chair and yeah. then sat down into a low chair. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So seated to standing to right. lower sit seated. To stand. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: So um so I assessed pain or I asked about pain intensity, mm-hmm. zero to ten before they stood and then uh, during, and then after when they sat down. Okay. Okay?
0: And they're all going from the high to low? Yes, this is high to low. Okay.
2: All right, so tell me, what do you notice about the pain intensity patterns?
0: So what I wanna do is is describe what I'm looking at also. So on the graph that we're looking at, for those Mm -hmm. of you that are listening in, Along the left, along the vertical axis, Mm -hmm. we've got that 0 to 10 scale that you were discussing. And it looks like there are three data points. Yes. Pre, during, and post. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. And there are two lines here. And the lower of the two that connects these dots uh, is for white white with osteoarthritis. Mm -hmm. And then above that is a blue one Mm -hmm. for Mm African-American. And so the first point what we see in this is that for whites, when they're sitting in the high chair, mm-hmm. their pain is lower. Now, I don't mm-hmm. know if it's significantly lower, but right. we're talking about a 1.8 versus 3.9 yeah. on a 10 scale. So right. just under two to just under four. That's a, a, a fair difference, right? Yeah. That's mm-hmm. low to medium pain. Mm-hmm. When standing up, these points almost converge. They get a lot closer,
4: uh-huh.
0: closer-ish, right. I should say. Yeah. Um, so the... The, for, the, uh, for the whites, their pain goes up from yes. 1.8 to 2.9. For the blacks, it actually comes down just a little bit yeah. from 3.9 to mm-hmm. 3.4. Mm-hmm. And then when they sit down in the low chair, whites' pain continues to go up, albeit a little bit, but now it goes from 1.8 to 2.9 to 3.4. So it's gradually rising mm-hmm. through these transitions. For blacks, it starts, goes down a little mm-hmm. bit, And then goes up even higher than Mm -hmm. it was before. Mm -hmm. Okay. So have I described this pretty well?
2: Yeah. yeah, Perfect. Yes. Okay. So what do you think that means?
0: Well, it seems to me that...
2: Well, let's say this. Okay. So my sample size is very small. Okay. So there's 10 in each group. Mm -hmm. So what do you think this could be suggesting?
0: Well... Man, it, it seems like a lot, there's a lot yeah. to peel back here. Yeah. But what I would say is that if they're going from seated to standing, there's movement involved mm-hmm. first. Absolutely. And that movement seems to affect the older adults with osteoarthritis differently. For whites, the movement itself increases the pain. For blacks, it's, again, I don't know if it's significant, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it decreases the pain. From that point on, they both, so after they sit down in a lower position. Now, without even commenting on the position at all. So now they've sat down. Mm-hmm. So they've moved again. Mm-hmm. But I assume that this last pain rating is immediate. Yes. So so I can't really comment on how the pain lasts. But mm-hmm. it seems like, well, first of all, if you're having people to move, if you go from a higher chair to a lower chair and you're black, you're going to end up in more pain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can see that from the graph. But, um, but it goes significantly higher later for the blacks again I shouldn't say significantly noticeably higher mm-hmm. up to four almost 4.8 whereas whites it's higher throughout the entire thing right, yeah. so it seems like the movement itself has a different effect on mm-hmm. whites than it does blacks
4: mm-hmm.
0: so the the movement might actually even depending on how you're doing this going to standing might be more comfortable Per se, mm-hmm. reducing pain mm-hmm. for blacks than it is for whites. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, I I, I want to get your input, yeah, because that's a lot to unpack from. Yeah, and one um,
2: and you've helped me a little bit, but uh, unpack these uh, data here because yeah. I think because the sample size is small, um, you know, we have to be cautious as to how we interpret sure. this, right? Sure, you know? sure. But I I think. I think there's a lot here for us to understand about the intensity patterns of or the racial difference differences in intensity patterns. Sure. And so, you know, you talk about you can't really tell if it's uh, statistically significant, but you know, clinically significant it probably is. Very I'm, meaningful, right? And,
0: and one thing r- from start to finish, even though they come close in right. the standing position, right. the African Americans are experiencing more pain.
2: Yeah. So even so for African-Americans, older African-Americans, their baseline is already higher. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in a couple of my uh, different activities uh, where I'm assessing movement, evoke pain, I see this pattern where African-Americans will decrease during the um, exercise or the activity and then they'll increase after. Mm. Unlike for white Americans, they kind of have this linear trend of Mm -hmm. increasing Mm -hmm. from baseline to immediately after um, the activity. And I see this with low-intensity and medium-intensity activities. Okay. With high-intensity activities, like the biodex, for example, mm-hmm. um, I don't see this distinct pattern. It It's the same. So they all kind of increase, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to during, and then they decrease after. Okay. So I'm, I'm trying to tease apart, you know, is there something... Um, does, you know, maybe the high intensity or the more experimental procedures, does it act more as an equalizer of right. kind of standardizing the exercise and thus the pain is a bit more controlled? I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that maybe uh, activities of daily living are more challenging mm-hmm. for old African Americans than for whites for whatever reason and I think there are a lot of different reasons um, we can look from a biological perspective we can look from kind of a adaptation social perspective as to why we see these patterns right mm-hmm. um, but I think there's a lot to tease out here and I didn't do quantitative sensory testing so I can't really say that you know this is due to I don't know, central sensitization. I can't say that it's really due to um pain facilitation, pain inhibition. I can't say that, right? I can think about it.
0: Sure. Well um, and that and that leads you into mm-hmm. how you design the study to right. look at a larger a larger yep. sample. Yep.
2: Yep. Yeah. And this pattern that we see of increasing, um, if we look at it maybe two time points after immediately, and it continues to increase, is that an indication of temporal summation.
0: Right. And well, and that's one thing that that I was trying to hint at a little bit with the the last rating. Mm-hmm. So they there's they're sitting, you mm-hmm. rate, they stand up, you they rate, I would say instantly, and they sit mm-hmm. down and they probably rate pretty soon. But then asking them again, you know, 1 minute, 3 right. minutes, yeah. 5 minutes later, yeah. that that I think would also give a yeah. really interesting
2: So that's what we're doing in Impact.
0: Okay. So I think in all honesty, That's a whole other conversation. Yes, I agree. And and I'm glad, actually. That's a great segue. All I want to do is dangle the carrot (laughs) in front of our audience to get them back, not only to listen to the podcast, but the next time you're on. Mm -hmm. We've got a lot that we can talk about. Oh, yeah. And, you know, well, this is and this is why we're looking to collaborate. Mm -hmm. And so I I love the work that you're doing. It's fascinating to me. and, And I really if if you and and our listeners hadn't already you know, caught on to this uh, uh, in addition to how brilliant you are and driven you are and you know high output as far as your work the thing that i think i like most mm-hmm. that really drives the point home is your perspective mm-hmm. your perspective on some of the same and we you know even in just talking about um, you, your personal experience with this and And maybe this is specific to me because I I feel like uh, our perspectives match up really Mm -hmm. well. You know, we we can kind of cover each other's blind spots on some of these things when looking at how people experience pain, particularly in relation to movement. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: So um, I I don't know. Like I said, it's it's just absolutely fascinating to me how you see things. And and it's a really, um, at least to me, a unique perspective and so valuable in really helping people. Um, So for that, I want to thank you for coming on and for sharing all of this, and and this is an open invitation. You 100% can come back anytime you
1: like. Oh, well thank you. This was really fun, Josh. Thank you for joining this episode of The Price of Pain. Opinions expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and guests and not representative of the University of Florida or parent institutions of our guests, unless specifically stated. You can find more information about price on the World Wide Web at price.ctsi.ufl.edu. And keep up with our researchers on social media by searching Facebook for UF Price, by following at UF underscore pain on Twitter, and Price of Pain Podcast, all one word, on Instagram.
0: I just really look forward to the next time where we can we can talk even more about this study you have mm-hmm. going on. So um, I, I do want to say the name of the study because it'll kind of set us up. Now, people won't okay. be able to find this, if I may, yeah. and I, I have to look at my notes here because I want to get it right.
2: Okay.
0: There are some of the best acronyms and initialisms that, that Price, <laughs> of course, it's in the name, that Price uses. So I want to make sure. So it's Investigating Movement Evoked Pain in Osteoarthritic Conditions. So yes. IMPACT. Yes. yes. All right. All right. So we're going to leave that as mm-hmm. the teaser for, uh, we should make that the post-credit scene, right? Like they do in the movies. Yeah. That's, that's a teaser to get people back for the next one. Yeah. But hopefully, and so the this sequel. is... The sequel. Yeah, right?